everything's going so well. Hello and welcome to Grape Culture, the podcast where three women drink wine and discuss feminist literature, pop culture and issues. I am Sam. I'm Kim. And I'm Ali. And we hope you enjoy the episode. On this week's episode, we're going to be discussing the book Feminist City by Leslie Kern, which is a book all about feminist geography and how women can claim spaces in spaces that have traditionally been created by men. But before we get into that, first point of business is that it is a two-man podcast, or two-woman podcast, I should say, today. It's just Kim and I. Alex is otherwise indisposed, so it's a twofer. Uh, And we also have some wine that we need to talk about, don't we, Kimberly? We do, we do. So, um... For this episode, I asked Sam to get hold of a Vino Verde, which I forgot to look up the actual Portuguese pronunciation. Vino Verde. Vino Verde. Great. Vino Verde. There you go. The reason is, when I chose the book to talk about, I was very conscious of the idea that it's about sort of deliberate space and deliberate planning and and, and thinking about yourself within the world. So I wanted to get a wine that kind of, I wanted to make sure that we chose our wine deliberately that we that we had a, a theme but we're still and will be for the foreseeable recording remotely so it's a lot harder for us to get exactly the same wine mm. so I thought that a, a, a regional wine would be a good sort of solution to that um, and then specifically I thought about um, Vigna Verde because it's one of the wines that is 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 of a particular region it's also quite a um, distinctive and challenging wine like it was a wine and a lot of the ways that it was made challenges traditional viticulture. It is a young wine. It's produced earlier than a lot of traditional white wines. Because of that, it has a slight fizz. It's grown in a specific region of Portugal. And when I went to Porto a few years ago, they make a really big deal about it. My logic was, you know, it's a deliberately made wine that's quite challenging. It's not It's not the norm. It's not the status quo. It's not... Um, it's not for everyone and it's not made in the traditional way that that wine is, which you could argue is is thematic of the book that we're going to discuss. There we go. So I think that we each have a different one. We do. So I popped on down to Novel Wines, who very kindly gifted us some wine for an episode a few months ago. They had uh, three Vino Verdes, I should say. And this is the one I went for. It's called Broadbent mainly because it made me think of Jim Broadbent and uh, that made me happy. And as soon as I saw it, my brain just went, everything's going so well. <laughs> Good enough reason. But yeah, Portuguese fairly obviously because it has to be produced in a certain region, much like Cornish pasties. So the tasting notes say, uh, Broadbent has partnered with family owned wineries around the globe to produce rich wines with the essence of place and tradition. Broadbent wines represent authentic character and infinite pleasure. Oh, okay, kinky. Beautifully fresh with tart green apple, white peach and melon flavours, a delicious crisp and zesty finish. So, oh, hang on, what the hell? Oh, that's quite a nice touch. So the label has a big flower on the front um, and there's a good little quote on the back from Bartholomew Broadbent, who I'm assuming is the owner. And it says, my niece Alice painted the flower on this label when she was four years old. Yeah, that's mine. I went to Marks and Spencer's and I have Tapada de Villar. Uh, 2019 which I think has a picture of a tree on the front but it's very like artistic um there's not a lot to say about it uh style on oat fresh spritzy no spray no lay <laughs> style on oat fresh spritzy taste green apples floral foods mm-hmm. salad tapas out of interest what percentage is yours 10 percent 
Mine is nine. Ooh. See if it's as good as I remember. The answer is probably no. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, that's weird. Oh, that's weird. So when I was in Porto, we drank a lot of this. And we kept saying, like, it's got... The fizziness makes it have, like, a real texture. It's not, like, fizzy, like, Prosecco or Cava, where you can feel bubbles. It just kind of feels like it's fuzzy. This has two waves of flavour. It's really Ooh, weird. interesting. Yeah. So it's really sharp and apple and then it's, like, it is a bit richer, a bit more... Well, more like the melon. Definitely get the melon. It is weird. It's a weird one. Mine tastes very much like Prosecco, but without the bubbles of Prosecco, more like a kind of... Flat Prosecco. <laughs> but not flat Prosecco. Just been open a, a little bit too long, but not long enough yeah, to get flat. It's an, it's an interesting one. It's, quite, it's definitely... It feels like quite a dry one. It will go down very quickly, but I will feel fine with mm-hmm. it because it's only 10%. So once again, the book we're talking about this week is Feminist City by Leslie Kern. Uh, Kim, do you want to tell us a bit about what the book is about and why we chose it this week? Yes, yes, I do. Um, I'll start by reading the blurb. A better, more inclusive and more just urban life. We live in a city of men. Our public spaces are not designed for women. There is little consideration for women as mothers, workers or carers. The urban streets are at times a place of great of threat rather than community. Gentrification has made the everyday lives of women, especially low-income women, even more difficult. But what would a metropolis for working women look like? In Feminist City, through history, personal experience and popular culture, Leslie Kern exposes what is hidden in plain sight, the social inequalities built into our cities, homes and neighbourhoods. Kern reveals the way these issues are exacerbated as race and sexuality influence our encounters with urban spaces. In response, she offers an alternative vision of the feminist city, a space for friendship and solidarity, where the transit system accommodates mothers with strollers, women could explore the streets day and night without fear of harassment, and imaginative approaches to housing make the city affordable once again. It is time to dismantle our assumptions about the increasingly urbanised world in which we live. So, yeah, what this book is, is an examination of specifically urban spaces in which we live specifically you know bigger cities looking at cities with subways and things like that but urban spaces as a whole and the impact of city planning and gentrification and management by men and men in those industrial fields and how environments generally are not made for anyone other than white cis able-bodied men but yeah so when i when i chose it as something that i wanted us to read a hadn't been released yet, and B I obviously hadn't read read it yet. Um, so when I actually came to read it, I was pleasantly surprised. What did you think of it? Because I have feelings. Yeah. So the book, like you said, when we had our production meeting, it sounded like it was really interesting because it's not something that I think many of us have considered to be anything other than oh, there are a lot of dark alleys here or mm. you know none of us have kids none of us have had to deal with the the accessibility issues of uh, prams or strollers or anything so it didn't really enter my mind that this was even a thing so is it, it was good to be able to get the chance to read about it and to to learn a bit more about it so feminist geography is is a is a school of study uh, and is an a recognized academic area of study which i didn't know to begin with with the book I didn't know how I was going to feel about it because I was 
I kind of went in with this idea of like, yeah, but how much can you really say? Like, how much is there to actually talk about with this? You know, like we just said, accessibility for strollers when most people transporting kids around will be a certain gender. And yeah, safe walking home at night. That was that was all I could think of. But there's a lot more to it that Leslie Cohen goes into. So I found that interesting. I think to begin with, it was a bit dry because it starts with the first chapter about motherhood. And again, obviously, that is a perfectly valid and important consideration, but I've not experienced it. So I did wonder if it was going to be very much. Uh, I couldn't take my pram on the tube for an entire book. Mm. And I didn't know how that was going to be. But it's not that it was it was much broader. It was there were a lot of chapters that I found uh very interesting and I was I enjoyed it I didn't I won't say that I steamed through it it's only 173 pages and then a shit ton of notes at the end but it took me longer than I expected basically it's good yeah I um I agree with you about the first chapter so it has seven chapters Mm -hmm. um city of men which um talks is is the introduction is the what feminist geography is what city like what she's talking about when she's talking about geography city of mums is what you talked about which is about motherhood and navigating motherhood and particularly new motherhood in a city space and also pregnancy in a city space um and the the unique problems faced by women who are pregnant and how their bodies relate to the the world and how people relate to their bodies um city of friends which is is about uh it's the sex in the city friends. chapter. It's the sex in the city chapter, but more than that, like it's it's the broad city chapter. It's it's and navigating it. friendships. It's it's very much the text me when you get home chapter. City of one, which is about being alone and being anonymous and alone and invisible in the city as a woman. City of protest, which talks about the safety in terms of city city life and and demonstration and the differences that are faced by women and um other marginalized groups in the face of oppression and how and how cities are designed and how city functions are designed to make that difficult and then city of fear which is the really deep dive into like crime and sexual assault and violence um so those are the main chapters and i agree sam like the city of friends one i obviously loved i do think the the thing about the mums one i thought was an interesting choice to be the first like proper chapter other than the the introductory city of men so i was i was also briefly worried because i sometimes find that the motherhood argument can be a bit reductive not all the time and i don't mean that being a mother is reductive i just mean that sometimes when an argument is based on would somebody please think of the children? Then you get a bit fed up with it. Like it, it can, it can, it can dumb down a wider issue if people aren't aware of the fact that it is one part of a wider issue. And I, f- I felt that um, Leslie Kern was very aware of the wider issue, <laughs> like amazingly aware. Which, um, so I briefly considered that it was going to be like that, but it was, it was made very clear even within the chapter that the consideration for strollers and the consideration for mother- motherhood made her realize considerations for um, differently abled bodies. It was, it was a chapter where she really examined her privilege. And so it was quite nice that it was the first chapter in the end, because it really examined her privilege. It really examined her like historic ignorance. And I thought that that was actually very smartly done 
intersectionality of the book as well is something really impressive and I think we're going to talk about that a bit later mm-hmm. um I say impressive you know it's a white cis Jewish woman living in an affluent area of the western world talking about her experiences but what she does do well is address that address that and say this is what I know and this is what I have experienced but these are things that I should consider and that we should all consider that are beyond those experiences mm-hmm. but yeah we'll talk and yeah about she doesn't later. talk about her only one thing that I think was really good is that is it wasn't just there's no consideration for how to get a pram on a bus there's no consideration mm-hmm. for that it was about you know things like the journeys that um mothers who are taking public transport have to do they don't just get on a bus at one destination go you know and then get off at another they might be doing several school runs they might be um picking someone up doing grocery shopping um and it was the kind of the way she broadened that consideration out it gave me more to consider like you say it was more than just navigating an alleyway with with a pram but it was it was everything that you don't realize it doesn't just talk about a child in the world and navigating a street it also talks about the the idea of being pregnant the idea of making yourself so visible and the 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 positive aspects of a city for so many people is that you are relatively anonymous you're in a big place you can move from a to b to c without being noted or spotted and you can move quite quickly and that as a pregnant woman you can't do any of that because you are inherently visible and treated as if you're a burden if you're on public transport because people know that they should give up their chair for you but don't and yeah the 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 factors of suburbs versus city which I found particularly interesting that was yeah something that's really really fascinated me as well so the point that she makes about the suburbs versus the city, mm. which was, as I understood it, correct me if I've, I've got this slightly wrong, or oh, I'm just going to move because my legs are going to sleep. <laughs> suburbs are designed and purported to be a safe space for women because uh, uh, and for nuclear families. Because you have wide, well-lit streets and and you're away from the hustle and bustle of the city and you don't have to contend with dark alleys and and unsafe things and rabble. So, but but what that does... The great unwash. Yes, the great unwash. Um, But what that does is remove women specifically from the... um, the positive aspects of city life, which includes convenience, includes, you know, the the ease and ability to get to and from a place to get various amenities to socialise and experience culture and have a space of their own and focuses and essentially traps them inside an insular domestic field because people in suburbs are much less likely to go for a walk or anywhere because um everything is much more spread apart and this is particularly true i think in america over england because obviously england has a very different kind of village it's grown very differently yeah Yeah, um but they are less likely to go into city life because of the hurdles of transportation um bus and public transportation from a suburb into the city and back again uh is unreliable contradictory designed for commuters not designed for parents not designed for anyone with a child if you are trying to drop a child off at school 
and then get to work and then back again all on public transport you end up taking a bunch of buses and it gets very expensive what that ends up doing is again forcing women to be more likely to stop working in the city and and become primary caregivers because of the gender pay gap men make more so why would you give up the salary that makes more so it kind of forces women into these these traditional nuclear isolated isolated neighborhoods and that in order to get anything they either have to have a car or navigate this this like impossibly to you know difficult um public transportation system and i thought that that was really interesting because it wasn't really anything that i've ever considered considered and what that was particularly interesting was that this was an example of where she highlighted the knock-on effect and the intersectional knock-on effect that this has because she talks about how if you are an affluent family trying to manage either living in a suburb or living in a city and trying to get from A to B to C and, and do all the things that make a quote-unquote good family and and work and have jobs, you rely on the underpaid and understaffed and exploited labour of mm. people on even lower income than yourself. What she says is like, my own enrichment, completing higher education, relied in part on the availability of the underpaid labour of others, delivery people, childcare workers, driving home for me how the lack of public infrastructure for care work deepens inequality among women as, as we participate in multiple layers of exploitation in order to keep ourselves afloat. And I thought about that, and then I thought about, obviously this was written before the COVID-19 lockdowns and everything, but I thought about the exploitation of delivery drivers and... Yeah. Amazon workers and everything like that. It was so um, eye-opening to think about the fact that it's not just that what is inconvenient for a parent between the suburb and the city makes every like makes things worse for other people. I've just written the suburbs as a form of oppression. Interesting. That's <laughs> all <laughs> well, I've got in my notes. Well, it um, is interesting. It is because I, I immediately thought of and she name checks Desperate Housewives and Stepwives. Mm. And, um, and, and, and um, Mad Men as well, because what it made me think of was, um, again, it's because I've been watching it recently, but like, <laughs> you know, Don Draper has his mistress in the city and his wife in the suburb with the kids, that kind of very 1950s suburban dynamic. I thought, yeah. 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 You did a really I, good job of, of relating it back to pop culture and things that putting it in a way that you go, oh, shit. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, so I thought that like the idea of superbia is such a um, iconic image. American superbia is a very iconic image, and it's a weird thing as well because it's so there's this element of aspirationalness to it. Like it's very, you know, very Arthur Miller in a lot mm. of ways. The American dream is the white pig fence, the house in the suburbs, the two kids, the house. Mm. But it's also something that I think is quite synonymous with like stagnation. And nothing changes and death. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's 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 both the thing you want and you should want. And then on the flip side, you watch a thousand different TV shows or read a thousand books about like, I had everything I wanted. So why wasn't I happy in like the bell jar and et cetera, et cetera. And I like, I'm immediately thinking of two song lyrics. The first being 
Tracy Chapman fast car, we'll buy a bigger house and we'll live in the suburbs. Like that's mm-hmm. her goal, basically. And then the lesser known Andrew Mameon, uh, something corporate lyric from Me and the Moon, which is, I mean, the, the it name checks suburbia, but I won't give you the lyrics, but the, the, the song is about a woman who stabs her husband because <laughs> she's like just fucking done with this shit. And it's I mean, like, yeah. if I think of a suburban. Mother, mother oh god this is so this isn't meant to be stereotypical it's just this is what is brought to mind it doesn't mean it's accurate it's just what you think of uh it's like bored having an affair with the gardener probably gonna stab her husband in the eye that's what i think of probably oh. on valium <laughs> like probably, probably on a lot of valium or recreational gin all the time <laughs> there's nothing you don't live in the suburb it's fine <laughs> Not yet, but that's such. It's so it's so interesting that that's the viewpoint we have, and it's yeah, it's seen as this massive aspiration by a lot of, for a lot of people. It's 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 what you do. You buy a big house and you live in the suburbs, as you said. Mm-hmm. See also that song by Fountains of Wayne. Stacey's no bowling for bowling for soup. The other nineteen eighty five. Nineteen eighty five. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's that is a suburban housewife crisis song there's also an entire episode of um it's always sunny in philadelphia where two of the main characters both men both straight men oh no actually no one one is a gay man but he doesn't I, he, like he doesn't realize or doesn't feel comfortable expressing that he's going to much further down the line they move there as friends to live in the suburbs because they think it's because it's cheaper and they can commute to the bar that they own the, one of them ends up taking on that housewife role and just making endless mac and cheese and being like, why don't you like my mac and cheese? And then it ends with the the traditionally husband role, like flinging this mac and cheese across the room. And it's all very, it's actually now that I think about it, I'm like, oh, what a, what a clever satire. How funny that is. And I'm like, oh no, they just wanted to do some dick jokes. <laughs> we could probably drink these bottles of wine and keep reeling off yeah, yeah. that trope. And how this book, what it's done is tap into something that that everyone's familiar with and reframe it, like reminding us that someone planned it that way. So something that she, uh, that Leslie Kern talks about at the beginning of the City of Mums chapter and it's kind of a recurring theme that she comes back to throughout the book is this concept of the, the flaneur and the flaneuse. I can't, I, my French is shit. FL. There's, there's some accents in there. I'm not going to spell it. It basically means a person, like a city person who is able to wander around, blend in with the crowd and take in the city without any, without standing out in any way, doesn't it? Yes. A person who walks around to observe. City. A city stroller. Yeah. A per- like a flaneur is described as a man who saunters around observing society. Yeah. So the, um, but specifically it's a person who walks around a city and freely observing and making comments and for enjoyment. And it's something that I think she says the term was first coined late 1800s and then had a resurgence in the 1920s and 30s. Virginia Woolf uses, if not that exact term, but talks about a very similar kind of, not phenomenon, but a very similar kind of character or person. And a lot of the book is concerned with this concept of not blending in in the city but of being a part of the city 
and the flanier and the female version, the flanius, is you know a part of that. And she talks about it in City of in City of Mums or City yeah City of Mums because she talks about how being pregnant definitely marks you out as being mm-hmm. you know you you are in a state a thing, of, a thing you know people ah you're pregnant um they they can see it fairly obviously uh much as you know a, a lot of physical dis- disabilities can be seen straight away and mark you out to be quote unquote different mm-hmm. um yeah she talks about this being I can't, I can't i can't tell if she necessarily sees it as aspirational or not what do you think i think aspirational might not be the word but i think it's kind of it should be something that everyone can have. Like aspirational implies that it's luxury and it is a luxury, but it shouldn't be a luxury. And the idea of a flaneur is freedom. Um, and it is, it is a luxury thing and it is very much an, a privilege thing because not only do you have to have the safety, but you have to have the time because it's very much idle, an idle thing to be a flaneur. Yeah, it's not. Idly it's not this, is, this isn't someone on their commute to work for example this is just no it is someone who wanders around for the pleasure of it um and it is it was coined kind of made a thing by Baudelaire but it was also very apparent in um Victorian literature and Charles Dickens wrote quite a lot of stuff about it his most famous thing being night walks which is one of my favorite things that I studied mm-hmm. because it literally is it's his true like accounts of I can't sleep. I'm going to fuck off and walk around London until I'm so tired that I sleep. And he'd be a man and have the luxury to do that. Exactly. But that's exactly the point. That's exactly the point of this book. And that was exactly as soon as I saw that I was, I was sold because that was a big part of the reason why I was interested in this book, because the idea of the flaneur has always really interested me. I studied it during my master's. I, th- I found it fascinating. It's also something that I I do aspire to. And I think I think it is aspirational to feel safe and relaxed and have the time to just wander around. And some of my happiest days have been doing that. And I was like, I was so excited to share this thing that I, I really enjoy, this concept that I really enjoy, because I do think it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting motif in literature it's what happens in Ulysses it's what happens in Mrs Dalloway um it happens in a lot of things but it's also it's good for your brain it's good for your heart and it's good for your brain to walk around in a relax in an observational way without a purpose and without um a goal and there's a whole theory of psychology about how your mind is at its most creative when it's at rest which is why you have your best ideas in the shower the same can be true for flaneuring as it were like you Flannery. are you are yes, some flaneurism flanermanship flanmanship flanmanship <laughs> you that are, yeah. yeah that because you are walking around you are observing the world but you are not get you're not going somewhere you are not on a clock you are not thinking about getting to somewhere and it gives you a lot of fodder for creative pursuits and i think that 
women being excluded and not just women being excluded from these pursuits is a big part of a greater scheme to hold women back. And it's always been something that I lamented that I was not able to be a true flaneur and wander around, especially as someone who has suffered from insomnia. And Sam, I know you do too. And you, every so often you just kind of oh, want to be like, I just want to go somewhere. And then this, this book putting it into context of like actually just stating the thing women, you know, a flaneuse is a difficult thing to be because there is inherent danger of being a woman or a black person or an indigenous person or a disabled person in a city alone because of all these reasons. And it's more difficult because of all these reasons. Mm. So it is more dangerous. It is more difficult to physically navigate the world because things are not made for women's shoes or wheelchairs or so on and so forth. And the neighbourhoods themselves are more difficult, especially if you're a black or indigenous because you are pushed out into lower income neighbourhoods makes all of these things more difficult to be for us. And that is something that should be free to everyone. There's a lot more in the book about the different ways in which it's not possible. It's not not possible. It's just harder um, if you are a woman, a, a trans person, a, um, you know, someone who is visually marked as not being a cis white man. It is harder. Um, and like she talks a lot about, in uh, the City of One, which again was another good chapter, which I think we'll talk about again in a bit, um, about how it's hard to just go and be a woman on your own in a coffee shop or a cafe because you are in some way, you feel like you are in some way inviting conversation from people and you can't just sit and observe and blend in because you're always on your guard about, is someone going to come and try and fucking talk to me? Mm. <laughs> or, but yeah, we'll talk about that in a bit. I think maybe that's a good point for us to have a break. Maybe have a wee <laughs> and we'll come back and discuss it some more in a bit so we are back to talk some more about feminist city by leslie kern but before we delve into the second half of the book how are you finding your vigna verde kim it's not as vigna verde as i would have liked <laughs> okay um, it's got texture but not in the same way that i sort of have had others before I wouldn't call it spritzy. I would call it shitsy, fuzzy. Definitely getting the green apples, though, would also probably have this with salads and tapas. So they're doing all right. I hope that we do another Vigneverde Verde because mm -hmm. this was not the Vigneverde Verde I was looking for. <laughs> all right, Obi-Wan. <laughs> How about you? How are you enjoying yours? Yeah, it's. Like I said, at the beginning it was a bit odd with those two waves of flavour. Uh, as time has gone on and I got drunker and <laughs> got more used to it, I'm not getting that as much, but that's just because, you know, I'm used to it going in my face. It's definitely not one that should be served at room temperature. I've had the bottle set in this room and as it's warmed up, it's got less good. Um, it's fine. I Like you say, I think it would go well with food. I think just having it for an evening sesh like we're doing now is not the way to consume it. So we've talked a bit about the chapters, um, City of, well, mainly about City of Mum, uh, City of Mums, which was the chapter in the book all about motherhood and navigating motherhood and life in the suburbs and how that can be restrictive and how it was designed to be restrictive and those kind of things. And also the concept of the flaneur and the flaneus yeah. and pottering it around. Intru the city it and introduces life. that without it being specifically about motherhood. Yeah. 
exactly. There are another couple of chapters in the book that I found particularly um, relevant, absorbing. Um, I, I'm trying to find words other than interesting. That aren't interesting. <laughs> that aren't interesting. Um, that I was particularly diverting. Except yeah, diverting. <laughs> Where's a thesaurus when you need one? Um, but yeah, so those were the ne- the following two chapters, which were uh, City of Friends and City of One. And as we said at the beginning, City of Friends is about how uh, how much the city plays into the building of female friendships, or whether it does at all, or you know how how you hinders it that as, or hinders it. And how that interaction affects your your interaction with other women, um, particularly women you're close to. And then City of One was about, yes, but how you then navigate city life as a woman on your own. That, and that doesn't mean necessarily a single woman, although there's no reason why it couldn't mean that. It just means a woman who is physically by herself in the city. Mm-hmm. City of Friends was the point at which, in the book at which I thought, this is really engaging, this is something that I can relate to because she talks a lot about how um she would go into the, when she was younger she would go into the city like that was a thing to do with your friends and she particularly talks about one specific night in which they just stayed out all night and I think it was I think it was Toronto um or it was a big city nearby anyway and how that formed like she might not be close to this girl anymore but that night in the city was a key point of their relationship and their friendship and there was a lot in that chapter that I thought was it resonated with me because it was stuff that I hadn't thought about, but I read it and I was like, Oh shit. Yeah. You know, stuff about, uh, she talks about how there's no, there are no recreational spaces for young women Mm. really. And this made me think of parks and rec this whole bit, obviously. Um, she was talking about, you know, outdoor recreational spaces. They are skate parks. They are basketball courts. They are, uh, football pitches. They're, Although those things aren't specifically gendered, there is a certain gendered expectation, I think, towards those places. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's nowhere for young women forming in a, in a group or you know friends to just go and be. You have to go the mall, or the shopping centre, and just sort of knock about there. And then that feeds into that stereotype of, oh, women just want to go shopping. And it's like, mm. okay, what else would you like us to do? Mm. Where would you like us to go that is safe and mm-hmm comfortable and and does that we want to do which is allow us to talk and allow us to um form to be like a mall like a mall wandering around a shopping mall is a microcosm of flourishing yeah yeah that's true that's very true but then it's yeah you know malls been built because they are a safe indoor space safe. and there are more cut well say you know but they they feel quote-unquote safer to, to young women um also they're just more comfortable because you're not exposed to the elements and that kind of thing she also talks a bit about commercializing of these places for women and how you know if you want to do that stuff you have to pay you have to go in a coffee shop and you have to buy things you have to go into a shopping center and look at things and feed that consumerism there was a lot in that chapter but those are a couple of points off the top of my head that i thought were particularly poignant because i definitely remember as a as particularly as a teenager when you're like I don't want to go home. I don't want to hang out at home on my own or with my friends, with my parents. And yeah, so you go shopping or you go to Coffee Republic and where you go to the Mars in the dark and don't talk to each other. Or you go to hang out with the the boys. The boys at the skate park. The skate park. 
and then you have to pretend to give a shit about he's um, kicking what the fuck yeah. they're fucking called. like no one cares i went to school in the closest i mean technically it's a town but it's it's a city to my village uh and we did exactly that we spent a lot of time wandering around the shopping center wandering around the river by the shopping center so you had to pretending to be interested in things because it meant that you were in a safe space mm. Pretending to be interested in Topshop and pretending to be interested in boys, basically. Like I have, yeah, I definitely have one really vivid recollection of before me and my first boyfriend had got together, I had the chance to hang out with him and his friends, literally, literally in a multi-story car park. Mm. How was that? How was that a place to have fun? Me oh. and my boyfriend, my first boyfriend used to well no my first actual boyfriend that I actually met out with rather than my first you know person that I called my boyfriend uh <laughs> you mm-hmm. quote unquote go look at cars which was what in showrooms no 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 oh, so right. we would hang out on the riverside and then we would go quote go to look at the cars from the top of the multi-story car park like go look at the cars <laughs> just so we could go snog in private it was weird <laughs> but there you go but there is nowhere for... There's nowhere, but there's nowhere. Like, And I remember vividly having like a lot of thoughts and feelings about this as a very opinionated 14-year-old. Um, in, you know, like the places that we hung out were the bowling alley, the park, mm. the riverside, mm. the shopping centre, friends' houses if parents weren't there, never anywhere that wasn't well lit, never anywhere that wasn't with access to some kind of toilet facilities. Yeah, because um, we just we also we can't just go and pee in a bush. Well, we can. Can't just go pee in a bush. It's a much it's more faff than you pee on your shoe, and it's weird. And but yeah. also, there's the inherent risk. You know, like this is something that she addresses actually in the I think it's in the City of Warden chapter, which talks about to- public toilet spaces and and how being alone, um, and everything. Like if you want to go to the toilet as a woman. You can't just drop trowel because it does inherently involve exposing more of your body to the world. In a more obvious way. In a more obvious way and in a more risky way. Because it is inherently more risky to expose women's genitals than men's in a a salty kind of way. If you have found a place that is private enough for you to be able to, to quote, drop trowel and have a pee, yeah. it's also a place that no one is going to see you, which automatically makes it riskier to be in. Yeah. For us, it's one thing. For us, it's we're out having a leisurely thing and we cannot go to the toilet. The book addresses that in in places... In India, for example, mm. the cities are set up in such a way that women have no access to facilities at all and have to s- limit, grossly limit their intake to the point of fainting or passing out or anything, so that they do not pee, have to pee during the day whilst they are in the city because they have nowhere to go. And so then pee at night or defecate at night in fields 
where they are at risk for being raped and murdered, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and even I, if, even if you are taking, like, that's the extreme end, but the fact that you have to consider the amount of liquid you can put into your body is harmful to your health. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or the fact that you're like, yeah. I'm going to hold it in until I can pee in, as I often say, you know, like I want to wait until I go home and I can use the toilet in the comfort of my own home. Mm. Like that can be very damaging. I've, I've pushed myself to the point of pain. What, you know, like a best a UTI at worst, that's rupturing something like it. Oh Lord. Yeah. It's horrible and it's it's like it's just this really basic thing and I But it's something that isn't considered by male city planners or it's, n- it's something that isn't by male because... anyone, not even city city planners. And yeah, and all of this is completely without taking into consideration, you know, sanitary products, conditions for people who are menstruating. Like that's that's a whole other thing on top. Yeah, so all that toilet stuff, like I mean we veered off the friendship chapter All that into the uh the the city of one because the idea of the toilet talk is is kind of like is quite an intimate personal thing and and being solo in the city mm-hmm. um and i think that speaks to the fact that we've kind of blurred these two chapters the, the city of one and the city of friends i think because our personal identities are so like they they are divided between those two things we experience the cities that we are living in as both solo people and with each other more so than we ever have experienced it with anyone else. Put the toilet talk to the side (laughs) a little bit more about that chapter and the way that the city and navigating friendships and how that's something we hadn't really considered. Yeah, I think, yeah, these ideas of cities being a shared experience between friends. You know what, when I was reading it, I was... (laughs) There's a book I was reminded of, and it's probably not, it's obviously not a highbrow book, but it's a book that I think several people of our age would be familiar with. And do you remember, you remember Jacqueline Wilson? Yes. The, the, you know, read the illustrated mum. She had a series of books called Girls. Girls and Love. Girls girls and, yeah. Girls and Love. Girls and And there's a whole storyline about how they go into the city and the city being London. And one of the friends meet up, meets up with this guy that, she's been talking to online who's meant to be this you know young sense these girls are only about 13 or 14 and um they meet up this person and it's this much older man who's like it's a actually now looking back on it quite a sinister storyline but they're like she goes with her friends or she doesn't even go with her friends she's fallen out with her friends at that point but her friends go anyway to keep an eye on her to make sure that this is all okay that she's meeting up with this stranger from the internet um and then it turns out that it's not but her friends are there and it was that that was what it made me think of like that kind of women looking out for each other in this urban environment mm. by urban i mean in a city i don't mean any <laughs> implication on that as a lot of people do when they use the word urban i mean in a geographical sense but it it made me think of that and it made me think of how much female friendship affects the time you spend in the city as in how different it makes your experiences. So, you know, if you go to a city, uh, whether you live in it, whether it's the one you live in or not, whether you, if you go into the centre of this city, 
with a group of friends, you're going to have a very different experience than if you go with a partner or with a family member, I think. And for me, that city experience with friends, even though the city, quote, we live in is basically a big town. <laughs> it's not it's not a metropolis it's the it's city the, it's the opposite to the quote-unquote town that we grew up in but for me living in this city has been defined by my relationships with the women and that i know and the experiences i've had there mm. much more so than anything else so i really that a chapter really resonated with me because i was like this is when I think of this place, those are the people I'm going to think of. Even though the only reason I moved to this, well, not the only reason, part of the reason I moved to the city was because my then boyfriend was at university. Here. <laughs> I think that's a really good point because I too associate this city with my friendship with you, but I also associate associate it with so much with being alone. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. I moved here. You alone. moved here alone. I lived alone. We weren't friends off the bat, but so much of the reason that I stayed was because of you guys. And so much of my navigation of the city has been both alone and with you guys, but probably more with you guys. Like I've done a lot of navigating of cities alone. I did a lot of navigating of our city alone when I first moved, Mm -hmm. but my formative memories of our city are predominantly with you guys, with friends. Whereas my memories of other cities that I've been in have been being alone. And I, you know, this is why I say that these two chapters are so interlinked. At least they are for me because, because for me, I have navigated a lot of different places as a solo person and as a solo person, essentially without friends. Like, I'm not saying that I've never had friends. I just mean that, like, I went to a lot of places on my own. I went traveling on my own. I have had uh, friend breakups that have left me alone and I have even my hometown lived in it while living with someone else essentially alone because that person was my sister and she had her husband and they had jobs and I was still in the city and, and they weren't and and it's a conversation that we we've had it's a conversation that we've had quite a lot and i've a conversation i've had with other friends a lot about eating alone and going to mm-hmm. restaurants alone when i moved here and when we all were all getting to know each other i remember it being a topic of conversation that i would go out to dinner by myself at least once a week and i would go to the pub alone and just have a drink and read books and it's how i got to know various lovely barmen and charm the pants off a lot of people and get a lot of free drinks it was great but that was always a a conversation of either surprise or admiration or just like note for some people that's late 20s early 30s for me that was early 20s and so that it's a different experience it was a different experience but the experiences themselves were very similar and so I, you know, these chapters resonated with me for that, but I thought that the idea of navigating something with friends was particularly interesting because it was different to my experience. So we've sort of touched on it a few times in what we've been talking about tonight, but the book um, addresses um, intersectional feminist considerations throughout the way it's written. So as mentioned, it's written by um, a white cis hetero jewish woman 
uh, who lives in Canada, so it's a very westernised perspective. But she, throughout her conversation, there are points where she, you know, will will touch on how it affects, like we said, people that um, people of lower income, um, BIPOC people, uh, differently able people, Indigenous people. It, it, it's she does for something that's only again 173 pages of actual content. I think she does an impressive job of working in viewpoints other than her own. It's not perfect. Of course it's not perfect, but I think she does a really good job. I agree. Um, do you, Kim, do you have any anything that you felt was particularly important? Or do you think there's anywhere that she could have improved on that? Because, you know, she talks about, like we said, gentrification and how uh, that impacts on... Um, lower income communities, driving the rent prices up, driving them out. Um, similarly, there was the talk she talked about the um, the flight from the cities of the white people in a certain time period. I think it was 60s, 50s or 60s when cities became, um, there was a bigger influx of uh, migrant workers and people from different backgrounds and how white people went, oh no, we need to go and move somewhere else. And then the suburbs boomed. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, was there, was there anything that you thought was particularly noteworthy in that? Um, yeah, like, I think the idea that she touched on it is is almost doing her a disservice. I think that touched on implies that she mentions it. I think that she really okay. she focuses on she it. She wove it in. Yeah, and I think, like, that's that's not a criticism of you. That's I, I just wanted to, because I know that you and I have obviously spoken that we know that this is a thing. Like, I wanted to make it clear to our listeners she really really delves into the intersectionality it's not that she spends an entire chapter talking about her whiteness and then goes of course it's much worse for um black women and women of color yeah it's not a footnote yeah it's not a la saturday night live it's uh shade um it's Tea. very much <laughs> it's very much like a focal point of the whole thing it's the tr- it's one of the few books that I've read I think probably in the last year or so where I feel like the idea of the word feminist as you know everyone should be equal is really 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 mm. grappled with and really kept at the front of the text i think it's an excellent example i'm sure you know like i'm sure it's flawed and i'm sure and i really want to read it again i went through it make uh putting a sticky tab on everything that i found interesting not necessarily a quote not necessarily something that i was going to talk about i didn't make any like notes or anything um i probably should have but i have several you know like sticky tapes here probably about 75 percent of those are related to the intersectionality and how fascinating, how brilliant, and how useful I think it is. Because you know, we talk, we 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 say it every episode. We are white women, and we are very conscious of the fact that our feminism needs to be intersectional, and we are trying very, very hard to make sure that we keep that at the forefront of our minds and all the pop culture that we consume. We're not perfect, and we are flawed, and we welcome criticism, and we welcome change. This was an example where we, I was conscious that we were choosing a book that was by a white woman, and was 
ready to go into it with a little bit of a flinch as to how white, white it is, which is a criticism that we have made about other books that we've talked about on this podcast. This was the how white and how academic. Yeah, academia comes with its own. Obviously, it's a privilege Issues. of a different kind. Up some privileges, yeah. yeah. And this was a really good example of something that didn't just acknowledge, but actively delved into and actively asserted for experiences of not just race difference and not just able body difference and not just gender difference, but all of those things combined. And that was one of the most the most powerful moments that. I I was reading was the 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 discussion of like you cannot have all of these things without considering them all in one go. I'm trying to find the quote now. I remember exactly where it was on the page, but I don't remember where in the chapter. <laughs> you know, you cannot. We cannot make this a, a fair and just city without considering that an indigenous person is also an, a, dis- a disabled person, a black person is also a woman, a gay person is also possibly disabled, also possibly black, also possibly a woman. Like, all of these things, you cannot just think about one thing, you have to think about all of them. It's not just enough to say that you have a woman on your planning board. You have to have... Mm. You have to... Con- you have to be representative. Uh, it's not even down to representation. You just have to consciously be seeking, yeah. Consciously questioning I, I think the decisions that you've made. One of the points that stood out just while you dig out that quote is um, she talks. There's a chapter in there about um, city. Is it city of protest? The yeah, the chapter. Oh, yeah, city yeah. of protest is what it's called. Yeah. City of protest, which is a chapter in which she talks about a demonstration within a city environment, and she talks about going on a take back the night protest in the 90s um and the 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 place of that in um protesting for female safety particularly female safety but safety for everybody really um Uh during night and people who were sex workers and she talks about her like her young further at being a part of this protest and how they stopped outside a strip club um and she was very, she talks about being very caught up in the moment of like, oh my God, I'm protesting, isn't this great? And then looking back on it later, she's like, I wasn't considering the women of this um, neighbourhood that wasn't particularly affluent. I wasn't considering how this protest would affect their lives and their day to day. I wasn't affect, I wasn't um, considering the peop- the women, the sex workers in the club or the dancers in the club and how it would impact their income if people weren't able to get inside and that just the breadth with which she reflects and thinks i i found really really important because i think that's what a lot more of us are doing now is thinking back on our own actions and being like oh shit (laughs) i didn't think about that i thought yeah i completely agree i thought that was such a powerful moment like and it was one of the things that i really really appreciated from this book was how willing she was to be wrong i really felt that with all the things that we just said like the intersectionality of this book was very very not impressive seems like the wrong word but like i was pleased by it i was pleasantly surprised by it i was expecting a slightly whiter view of the world and i was glad that it was how it should be 
like you say, the consideration of intersectional um, perspectives is there throughout the entire book. Um, I think there are a few places that it does fall down. Um, not fall down just where it could be stronger. Maybe fall down is, is harsh. What it, it does very, very well with um, Black Lives Matter and um, uh, like the, the income across cities. But it doesn't in depth and maybe because of the author's experience, but it doesn't massively talk about age. That's one thing that I found was was missing a bit. That's a really good um, point, yeah. Yeah, so it's, she it, she talks a bit when she... There's a whole conversation there about um, the, benefit, the, the benefits of communal living in a way, like um, sharing childcare and um, the safety of living in female-led environments and that's very much what she leans to towards the end of the book but the consideration of like older women on their own is it's mentioned but very surface level it's skimmed over mm-hmm. quite a lot yeah um so i think that could have been improved mm-hmm. um particularly when it comes to you know city versus suburbs and ge- geography being such a big consideration when you're older because you're so much more if you move somewhere quieter, you are also further away from valuable amenities that you need ready access to. So I think that could have been picked up more. Another thing is that her commentary is very, very westernized. Mm-hmm. Um, she talks about uh, India and um, like she talks about uh, public transport in India. She talks about the, the, the toilet situation in various regions of um, Southern Asia. But there's not a huge amount of consideration of anywhere more Eastern than that. You know, there's no, she, a couple of mentions of Japan. There's not really much about China. There's nothing about, those aren't the only countries, obviously, but there are some big cultural differences. And so there are some, and those are places that are developing at an enormous rate mm-hmm. in terms of conurbations and cities and all that kind of thing. And that's, that's not really expanded on so much. No. And in some sense, that's probably because of lack of reporting or lack of data. But yes, at the same time, like, I, you need to acknowledge that lack of data if you want to acknowledge that you thought about it. It's just there's a lot about Canada, US, UK, which is, th- those are her areas of, of experience. And she yeah. talks about those are her areas, but she could have gone more into those areas. Those are the two things that I think could be improved on in this but otherwise you know it's a very good jumping off point for discussions of physical geography and cultural geography mm-hmm. and it makes me it, it makes me want to read more it makes me want to know more about this as a as an area as a discipline so we've been talking for a million hours sam yeah how was your wine <laughs> My uh, broadband, everything's going so well. Uh, being a bird was, it was fine. I, it hasn't converted me to being a bird. It was, it was a pleasant enough wine. If I was going, like we said, if I was going to a, a, a beachfront barbecue or something that involved some Greek foods, then I'd go, mm, yeah, this would go really well. But otherwise, I'm not just, I'm not cracking it out for a night in. It's not the one. Or, you know, pre-game session. I say pre-game session. I'm 30. I don't do that anymore. Kim, how about you? How was yours? Your M&S bean? Uh, yeah, it was fine. It wasn't what I wanted it to be. I don't know whether it was just the situation, if I'm misremembering how much I've enjoyed 
vineyard ed in the past or if this was just a particularly bland one. It was nicer than the average white wine, but it was kind of like if I'd spent that money, I would have preferred to buy Prosecco. For me, it's like a 2, 2.5. I think, yeah, I think I'm going to go with a 2. Yeah, I'm going with 2, I think. Yeah. Um, And how about um, Feminist City? I really enjoyed reading this book in a way that I wasn't necessarily expecting. Like, I thought that I would find it interesting, but I wasn't actually expecting to enjoy the reading experience in the same way that I truly did. Like, in the same way that I would enjoy reading maybe a novel or a, a memoir or something. And I really, really did. I And I was so pleasantly surprised by the intersectionality and the relevance, even in spite of, like, obviously she couldn't have predicted the pandemic, but in spite of that, the relevance that I, I think that it's a really good addition to a feminist canon. And so I'm giving mm-hmm. it a four, four grapes. I think I'll agree with you on grape rating. I think four is um, accurate. It was the the way that she addressed intersectionality in such a short space of time, the way that um, she talked about the different ways cities can have an impact on your life and not just cities, but different regions of cities um, was really good. I, like I said, I think there are places she could improve. So yeah, four. If you're interested in considering how the place you live affects who you are as a woman or femme presenting person or trans woman, this is a very good place to start. So this brings us to the end of the episode this week, but please do join us again in two weeks for our next episode. If you have any thoughts and feelings about this episode, please join us on our social media, which is at Grape Culture Podcast on Instagram, at Grape Culture Pod on Twitter. Great. I always forget. Uh, or you can visit us <laughs> at our website, which is Sam. www.allthews.grapeculturepodcast.co.uk. It's been, um, honestly, guys, we've been recording for three and a half hours. So. It's been a day. Um, we'd really be interested to know what you thought about this episode and about if you have read this book. Uh, tune in two weeks from now where we will have a brand new episode and hopefully Alex will be back joining us. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.